So once a quarter, most of you know this, but once a quarter we get together on a Sunday morning and we go through this uh, traditional recitation that's been happening for the last couple thousands of years, taking refuges, taking the refuges and taking the precepts. So I'll just say a few words about this and then we'll do that. It takes about 10 minutes. It's easy to think, of course, that uh, our suffering, the stress we have in our lives, is because the world is mixed up. And that just seems so apparent. So we make this connection between the messiness of the world and our relationships further away, closer to home. It doesn't matter. We make the connection that this messiness is somehow directly connected to the pain or stress or fear or heaviness that I experience. And so then we generally seek to hide from the messiness or to fix it, both of which are frustrating. So one way to think about this uh, recitation, and it's more of an inner movement, so this is just a public expression of what should be an inner movement that we can do all day long. It's it's a, it really represents the formal community coming together, doing this recitation together, is really an outward expression of this inner movement, this turning to a different way of being, really. And I wanted to talk in particular today about the second precept, which is in the formal recitation, we'll say, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what isn't freely given, or in other words, not stealing. And, but in a deeper sense, and this is the whole point of these precepts, they all revolve around not harming others, not harming ourselves, but it's really meant, they're meant to be a reflection in a way to open up our experience and to help us make this turn from a life of trying to control life, living in order to control life, control my mind, control those people's minds that are around me, you know. Now, if that isn't a frustrating endeavor, I mean, it's really frustrating to try to control our minds and to control those people around us and to want the world to be another place. But actually, it doesn't work not to engage our mind or the world or the other minds around us. So that's not the alternative, like, oh, okay, I'll just let my mind be. I'll let everybody else's mind be. So we have to engage the world we live in. It's not about letting go doesn't mean don't care, I don't care, it's okay the way it is. It's not saying the world is okay the way that it is or my mind is okay the way that it is. It's just saying that taking this personal responsibility to not like it and to want things to be other way, other, another way, that's frustrating. So this whole other movement I'm talking about is, is our attempt, in a sense, to fix things. And we normally don't talk about it because, you know, how it is, it's like, even in Buddhism, as, a, as in everything, 
there's a certain political correctness and so in Buddhism you'd never say, you know, I want to control the mind. Although if you read the original text, at least the way they were translated, there's a lot of that about controlling the mind. But we want to do it in a way that works. I think the, the important point is we have to be uh, sophisticated. So if, if we're interested in peace, if we're interested in a sense of love, wholeness, a fearlessness, a freedom, then the work we do should have that effect. Otherwise, why are we doing it? So it's like when I try to control my wife or control my own mind, I'm trying to have be happy or have peace or freedom. But I just don't pay enough attention to realize how that doesn't work. So much of what we try to do to make things work is counterproductive. So the refuges and precepts basically are these, this way, these teachings that human beings have found work. And it's a way of remembering. And the three refuges, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it's just a way of saying that this inner experience of the mind is relevant. And there's no way to be happy and engaged in the world without understanding the mind. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we're understanding that this awareness of the mind, <clears throat> this knowing of the mind, the knowing that the mind does, it's relevant. And we take refuge in that knowing and its capacity to know experience free of projection, basically. That's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is just another way of saying Buddha knowing Dhamma. This clear, empty, pure presence knowing things as they are in a given moment. That's what we mean by mindfulness. And we take refuge in that. We actually see that as being more dependable than anything else in our lives, more dependable than our friends and our parents and our intelligence, more dependent than anything as a source of real safety, protection, happiness, is taking refuge in Buddha knowing Dhamma, or this simple, clear presence opening to the way that it is. It may not feel like having big muscles or a lot of money or a four-wheel drive SUV or these other things we rely on to feel safe in the world, but actually it turns out to be quite a move. And it's a move we can engage over and over again. Every single moment when we're feeling unsafe, feeling confused, feeling lost, we can do it again. We can be the Buddha knowing Dhamma. Oh, this is how it is now. Well, can this be okay? And it's amazing how healing and clarifying that movement is. And then Sangha, the third, <coughs> the third refuge, <coughs> are just the beautiful qualities that tend to arise when it's Buddha knowing Dhamma, when the simple presence is knowing things as they are, <clears throat> then naturally the mind is more forgiving, more patient, more clear, clearly seeing how it is. Now, 
all the beautiful qualities. So that's what we mean by Sangha. Sometimes we think of it you know, as a spiritual community, but you know, a lot of spiritual communities that you know, aren't necessarily all about kindness and forgiveness and patience and acceptance and wisdom and love. So the Sangha we're interested in are these beautiful qualities that naturally arise when the mind is Buddha knowing Dhamma. That simple, clear, fearless presence opening to the moment as it actually is. Then you'll just see the beautiful qualities of humanity arise. And that's something to take refuge in. We can take refuge when we see it in other people. We can take refuge when we see it in ourselves. And we see that coming out of that simple presence with the way things are, that our life, our mind, our action is really appropriate and skillful and nimbly responding, engaging, taking care of what needs to be taken care of. That's what Sangha means. So we take refuge in these three aspects and that you know any relevant refuge would have to be available and that's the great thing about these refuges they are actually available for us it doesn't matter if you've never meditated before or you haven't ever studied the teachings of the Buddha everybody can discover and cultivate these refuges simple clear presence opening to the way that it actually is this mind and body this moment expressing the beautiful qualities that arise with that intimate connection with the moment. We can see it, we can appreciate it, we can profoundly respect it, and, and really take it up as a refuge. This is what we count on. You know, you got a di difficult day tomorrow, difficult interaction you have to do, you're dealing with not having a job or something like that. It's not that we don't make the phone calls or write the resume or have the difficult interaction, but the real refuge is Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha. That's really the refuge. That's really what we're counting on. Even as we make the call or write the resume or do whatever we need to do in life. Because taking refuge in these three things really frees us up, frees the mind and body up to do what it needs to do because it doesn't need particular conditions. We don't need particular conditions to be Buddha, Nine Dharma, expressing Sangha. In fact, what really develops the practice is learning to do it everywhere, all the time. And then the other thing that community does once a quarter, some of us do every morning, we, we go through the five precepts. These are the five trainings the Buddha recommends for lay people. And they basically are a refinement or an expression of this commitment to not harm living beings. Now, of course, we're in this predicament where we're going to harm living beings. There's no way to be alive and not harm living beings. It just comes with the territory of being alive, life eating life. But it's skillful, it's deeply skillful to take up this training not to harm, because it, it uh, illuminates so much about our conditioning. So the combination of taking refuge in the simple presence, knowing things as they are, noticing the beautiful qualities that come out of that, 
combined with this particular training in not harming. So that's the first precept is basically that I undertake the training not to harm others, other living beings. And then the second one I mentioned already, undertaking the training not to take what isn't given. The third is undertaking the training not to um, have sexual misconduct. The fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, harmful speech. And the fifth is to undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that makes the mind heedless, makes us more susceptible to causing harm, right? Because when we're less clear or heedless, it's easier to say something that we later regret. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or to not be paying attention when we're driving because the mind is intoxicated and it's just not as quick or clear. So I wanted to talk in particular about the second precept, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what isn't given because it can feel like a heavy trip. So I think what would be useful for us is to think about all of these trainings, you know, all the different ways we can train in not harming as a way of freeing up our life. Like I mentioned before, the whole spiritual life is about this turning from a life of controlling life, that's our basic strategy, to a life of letting go, we could say, or trusting. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not doing things because we're trusting. It just means that the emphasis is on trusting, opening, seeing clearly, not on controlling or fixing or making things a particular way. So what drives so much of our own suffering and then causing other people's suffering is this strong feeling we have, this experience we have, that we don't have enough. Some uh, contemporary Buddhist teachers now that are writing and talking a lot about this deep, pervasive sense of lack. And this is such an interesting time of year for that, to kind of tune into that. I've mentioned recently to some people that I remember being very young, like six, seven years of age, and around Christmas time, and really tuning into this feeling of lack and, and finding the whole experience deeply painful. I mean, and I even remember, I mean, I don't know how much of this happened later as I reviewed these memories, but also feeling somewhat betrayed by the whole Christmas scene and, uh, and then like even betrayed by my own habit of getting excited because I, I had some sense of what that was setting up in my mind, you know, excited about what would happen on Christmas morning, and then feeling that sense of disappointment. Like, I mean, even though I liked what I got, you know, I could, my imagination was always so much bigger <laughs> than my parents or Santa Claus could afford. <laughs> and that, that sort of uh, deep, sometimes subtle, sometimes obvious experience of lacking, like there's something missing. I mean, we can all check right now, isn't it common for us to feel like something is deeply missing or lacking? And the thing is, we immediately uh, take that as some existential truth, that that feeling of lacking or scarcity or needing 
that that's somehow absolutely true, and then it then following on to that, the most appropriate thing then, of course, is to do something about it, to go get what we think we need. or And it immediately puts us in competition with one another because we think, you know, she also or he also needs that and there's only so much of this love or so much of this stuff, so many of these jobs, you know, and if they have them, then I don't. I mean, we see this being acted out nationally in terms of, you know, immigrants, it's acted out in so many different ways. This coming out of this deep sense of lack or scarcity, neediness. In this particular path that the Buddha laid out, he would invite us to get interested in that feeling, not to immediately believe it as true, like that we understand what it is. Maybe we don't understand this experience of feeling lack, feeling needy. What actually is this feeling when we open to it? You know, when we're at home, alone, at night, and feeling alone, can we get interested in that feeling, or do we immediately want to cover it up? Or we're in a crowd, you know, and somebody's getting a lot of attention, and we're not. And we feel left out, or we feel like we're not getting enough, enough juice from life. You know, do we need to rationalize it like, well, they just like him or her because he or she's cute or something like that? Instead, can we get interested in that feeling of being left out, not being liked enough or as much as we want? When we see somebody with the new car or the new cell phone or the new this or that, you know, and just notice what it triggers. Or the people who do Christmas right, you know, and they got all the decorations up, and they got the right attitude, and the right music playing, and, you know, and, and we haven't bought Christmas cards in years, and, and every time we get one, we feel bad. Why can't I do this? You know, where do they have the time? And we can just use these kinds of experiences to beat ourselves up, to feel badly, and to, to reinforce this feeling that something is deeply wrong with life. This is an assumption that's hard to shake. Like when we read about global warming, or about young children starving in Somalia, or any number of terrible things that are happening in the world, it can on the one hand, it can break our heart in a good way, where the heart opens up and wants to respond in an appropriate way. But in another, if we're not careful, what it does is it reinforces this deep sense that the world is screwed up. And it's just a, a bigger expression of this feeling that I'm screwed up. My life, all life, is screwed up. It's bad. It needs some fundamental fix. And then we're really susceptible. We're susceptible to idealistic thinking that there's some body being or whatever that's going to fix everything, or that we're being punished for being bad, or some kind of magical thinking that, that sort of keeps us from looking deeply at what's going on, basically. Sort of some belief system that 
takes us off the hook. Like we don't actually have to open and investigate our actual experience of feeling lack, feeling scarcity, feeling that life isn't what it should be. So what we want to do, of course, is we want to challenge that and we want to experiment in as many moments through the day in our formal meditation time and then throughout the day we want to experiment and we want to walk through that door over and over again that that simple feeling of things not being okay we want to open that door well what is this and see if there's something on the other side because it just might be that this pervasive feeling of lack and scarcity and neediness and not okayness or whatever you want to call it arises because we run. I mean, wouldn't that be ironic? That human suffering and stress is the result of running from life, running from the way that it is, denying, distracting ourselves from the way that it is. It isn't actually the feeling of fragmentation and alienation and uh, narrowness or constriction, it isn't inherent in life. It's inherent in running from life or denying life or struggling with life. That's actually the cause for this. So this simple training, you know, I undertake the training not to take what isn't freely given as we unpack it, as we look at all the ways we grab on to things that aren't freely given, long for things that aren't being offered to us in life, we see how we're acting out the scarcity, this neediness, and we, we learn, we discover another way, like contentment, practicing being content with what we have, content with the mind that we have, like a lot of us now some of you are a lot older than me, but a lot of us in the 50s start noticing that we don't remember things as well as we used to. Now, is it okay to be content with that, that sort of losing some of the nimbleness of mind as well as the nimbleness of body? Can we find some real peace and acceptance with the natural birth and growing up and aging and getting sick? and dying. Is that ordinary, inevitable movement through life, can it be, can it allow, does it allow for contentment? Can we be content with the life we have? The mind, the life circumstances, the face, the body, the partner. Can we be content? What would that look like? What, what's in, what's what possible danger? I'm not saying that there should never be any change, but we want to really look at this potential of contentment and even joy. It's really more than just contentment. I mean, I, I think contentment is joy, but I think for a lot of us, you know, the word contentment has gotten, become synonymous with resignation. You know, I'll be content with what I have. <laughs> We're not really content with what we have. We've just given up. <laughs> We've been so frustrated trying to make things other that we're just tired of beating ourselves up. So we're content. 
But think about contentment like the joy of renunciation or the joy of not needing things to be other than they are. That's a real joy. But really not needing our life to be other than it is? What a burden that drops from our shoulders not to need things to be other than the way they are. So this is the invitation for today and onward to work with these five precepts and in particular the second precept when we undertake the training not to take what isn't freely given. It's really it's a movement towards joy, like to be joyful with what we have. So it's not like we're not going to take because we're afraid of being punished, but we're feeling whole and full and content and joyful. So the need to take isn't there, isn't as strong. So let's do the refuge and refuges and precepts. And I think you're on page 35. And we'll need a few people to do some reading. Um, we'll have five people read, pick on Han's comments. So I need five volunteers, if anybody would like to do that. Casey, you want to do number one? Somebody want to read the comments for number two? Tom, you want to do that? Thanks. Number three? Anybody? Wynn, would you do three? Sure. Number four? Thanks, Ali. And number five, anybody want to read the comments for five? Yeah, thanks. So that would be on page 36 and 37. But we start on page 35 with the three refuges. We first honor our teacher, the Buddha, and then we do the three refuges three times. That's what ha happens here. And then uh, I'll ring the bell. We'll have a few moments to reflect on the English translations. When we do the precepts, we'll do both the Pali and the English. So we begin with the Namo Tassas. Trusting inherent 
Precepts now, first Pali, then English, and then we listen to one of our community members read Tiknat Han's comments. Anati Pata, where Amnami Sika Adam Samadhiyami. I undertake the trainings to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. We can just reflect for a few seconds on how that might look in our lives. And now the second. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, sexual injustice, social injustice, stealing, oppression. <coughs> I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal, not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Now the third. Kame su mitchatara wehamani sikapadam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse 
and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. And now the fourth. Musavadam Vamani Sikapadam Sapadyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I'm committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure of. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I'm determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the fine mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. Now the fifth. Surah Aryan Majapamadatana, where Amani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself my family, and my society by, protect, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I'm determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that may undermine spiritual growth such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I'm aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is a crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. Now we finish up. Idame Sivam Madhapalanyanasa Tachayo Hotu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest service of liberation. Then we end with our sharing of the merit. Let's read that paragraph. Taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings 
and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merits with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions, leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.